You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Um, okay, well, uh, why don't we get started then? Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us. And um, just one second here. Um, sorry, there's a slight, slight technical delay on my end. Uh, I will fix momentarily. Okay. There we go. All right. So, uh, hi. My name is uh, Ted Gerber. It's a pleasure to welcome everyone to this week's uh, lecture uh, in our regular series sponsored by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia, also known as Krika. I'm the faculty director of Krika. And uh, we have one more lecture on our calendar. So before I introduce our speaker for today, let me tell you that next week, same time, uh, same place, we will be hearing from Karest Shank, who's Associate Professor of Political Science at Nazarbayev University. And she will be talking about Eurasian responses to the COVID-19 crisis between fact and fear. So please do visit uh, our website, which is krika.wisc.edu to see more information about this and other uh, future events. Uh, so just a few logistical things. Uh, our custom in our uh, lectures is to ask people to mute their mics and their videos for the lecture and also hold questions to the end um, and when, when the, the speaker is finished, uh, we'll moderate the questions and discussion, and we ask people you know, to use the raise hand button under the participants key to indicate that you have a question, and then turn on your mic and camera uh, when you're acknowledged. Also, we uh, now are asking people to introduce yourselves briefly when you ask your questions, so we know, uh, so the speaker and everybody else you know, knows who you are, just briefly. Uh, also, you know, as you probably already heard, today's uh, presentation will be recorded. So then finally, without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce Erica Marat, who is the Associate Professor at the College of International Security Affairs uh, at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. And uh, I first uh, became acquainted with Dr. Marat's uh, research many years ago. We were just chatting uh, when I read uh, a lot of her reporting on uh, Central Asian societies and the Eurasian Daily Monitor. Um, however, her, uh, since then, her research is broadened. She focuses on violence mobilization, security institutions, um, policing in Eurasia, India, and Mexico. And her book, her very well-received book uh, called The Politics of Police Reform, Society Against the State in Post-Soviet Countries, uh, appeared in, with uh, Oxford University Press in 2019. And uh, in that book, you know, she explores the conditions in which meaningful transfer, transformation of police is likely to succeed and when it will fail. So obviously very relevant and topical, given what we're experiencing uh, with respect to discussions about police reform in the United States today. However, of course, uh, Dr. Murat examines not the United States, but um, post-Soviet countries in that book. Today, however, she's going to be talking about a different but related topic, and that is Technological Solutions for Complex Problems, Emerging Electronic Surveillance Regimes in Eurasian Cities. So it's a delight to welcome uh, Dr. Murat, and I'll turn the floor over to her now. Thank you so much, Ted. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And um, the, the research that I'm going to present today um, it is published as an article in Europe Asia Studies and uh, the early drafts of that article were discussed as part of Quanar's meeting. Um, was it two years ago? It feels like it was eternity ago uh, in St. Petersburg uh, where you were uh, present and Catherine Henley, who's also here um, was there. I thought it was a great um, place to um, discuss the, uh, the earlier drafts of, um, of this paper. Um, so I am delighted to be here and um, I'll start with that. So when I studied uh, police reform programs 
in former Soviet space, I kept hearing this buzzword, smart city, smart city, safe city, smart city, um, everywhere I went. Um, and in Moscow, Sabanian promised hundreds of thousands of uh, surveillance cameras across the city to blanket the city, so the city becomes smarter and safer. Um, the mayor of um, Kiev, Klitschko, also promised tens of thousands of surveillance cameras in central parts of Kiev, but also in the more uh, traversed areas of, of the city, and even cities uh, as, as small as Dushanbe in Tajikistan um, also embarked on those ambitious, smart, and safe city uh, projects and installed dozens of cameras that recognized license plates um, in central parts of Dushanbe. And um, if we look across uh, Eurasia or post-Soviet space, uh, we can really see that um, the smart city and safe city projects are arising all around, uh, both, as, both in the big cities, uh, but also uh, in smaller cities. And this map has to be updated every six months because new projects uh, come about every um, every now and then. Um, and the Chinese, Chinese companies like Huawei and Hikvision, they dominate the, the space. Um, there are also um, Russian projects uh, by Rostelecom or uh, Rostech um, and uh, several uh, Western projects like Cisco um, and um, yeah, pretty much, pretty much Cisco but, uh, and I, IBM. But uh, Huawei really dominates the space and you can see um, this kind of red uh, circle that is present all, all across. And to me, this really reminds uh, this concept of uh, by Jasanov and Kim, uh, Dreamscapes of Modernity, when um, it, it's a notion that describes a collective vision of uh, technological advancement um, as a way of creating specific sociological outcomes. So by expanding uh, technological innovation in urban spaces, um, the cities, so from Moscow to Kiev to Dushanbe to Nur Sultan, really trying to achieve some kind of sociological outcomes. And very often it is a more orderly society with fewer crimes um, and uh, fewer problems. Um, and the question I ask in my research is what are the um, changes? What are the, how are smart technologies changing public spaces and cities across, across Eurasia? Um, in my article, I mostly focus on Kiev, Almaty, and Bishkek, but today I'll, I'll expand my research to other cities as well. Um, and um, in the article, I really did mostly uh, conduct discourse analysis. So I looked at uh, city plan programs. So um, in Russian, it's known as uh, Yenplan. Um, it is a relic from the Soviet um, regime when cities planned their development for the next five to 10 years. Um, I reviewed media, media reports that reported on smart and safe city technologies. I looked at statements by mayors and um, agencies. Um, I looked through contracts with foreign firms, both on municip municipal and national level, and I conducted interviews mostly with, um, uh, mostly with, uh, um, uh, urban authorities, municipal authorities. Um, and I did uh, now as part of a different project, I'm engaging some quantitative comparison. I'm gonna present for one of the cases, um, a little bit of a quantitative overview, but that's just, um, that's more of an uh, emergent research that I'm conducting in collaboration with another scholar. Um, and um, so I entered this um, research trying to look what are the domestic processes uh, for installing this kind of cameras and this, this kind of surveillance regimes. And um, this was really um, an outgrowth of my research of just generally um, law enforcement in uh, former Soviet space. Um, and what I noticed is that, um, that there is really a local demand for surveillance. Um, for this innovative way of policing behavior. And um, these are the examples of some of the signs of what kind of behavior is not welcomed um, in Almaty. So no spitting or uh, no uh, littering. And um, it really, uh, to me, this resonates with the um, argument that uh, recently presented by uh, Rosenfeld on the autocratic middle class. Um, it's this kind of, um, in, the, in, in, in the case of policing in urban areas, it's this long-term 
um, urban class that is economically autonomous, but still expects the state to um, engage in daily lives and to order um, daily life um, in accordance to the, um, to the re urban residents' interests. Uh, um, it also resonates with some of the research that is also emerging the urban studies um, in the urban studies domain of how um, urban residents now in, uh, in Eurasia, um, so after the crazy, crazy 1990s and 2000s, uh, when uh, urban dwellers were renovating their private spaces, so uh, engaging in what's known Yevrarimont, you know, beautifying um, their private spaces, apartments, or homes, are now turning their attentions uh, attention to the aesthetics of the public space. And kind of um, from the words of one uh, employee of um, Almaty Mayor's office is, um, you know, urban dwellers uh, in Almaty, so the long-term urban middle class, are really tired with uh, tired seeing um, some story. So I guess in English it's splash dash uh, building. I don't know. Ted, me help me uh, with translation. Um, with uh, street retail, uh, with chaotic um, ad advertising billboards all covering the city, and they want a, nice a more beautiful public space. And the cameras are helping to create this public space where um, this orderly behavior or behavior that doesn't com conform with this vernacular notions of urbanity, of what it means to be an urban person, um, is policed, policed better. Um, and uh, at this point, when I present my research, um, I, I often hear students ask me, but but what do you actually mean? Do you mean smart or do you mean safe here? Yes, because those are two different notions. Because smart uh, refers to this idea that life and within a city becomes easier. You can use your cell phone to pay for services, for public tra transportation. You can access, access services. Um, there's you know, Wi-Fi hotspots available and all those great things that make life within a city seamless and um, more comfortable. But safe is a more contested category. It is a um, it is a subjective category um, that uh, defines what is disorderly and what is criminal behavior, and it's it's very often politicized. And um, it, in, in Eurasian context, including, um, exposes deep political and economic and social divides. So uh, when I talked to police officers in uh, Kiev, for instance their understanding, and also civil society, in fact, um, often refers to um, of what is an urban uh, behavior within, within Kiev um, and what is not living up to this idea of urbanity is uh, has a lot of parallels with um, what kind of what kind of population within Kiev accepts the changes um, brought about by Euromaidan and the ideals of Euromaidan behaving in a more um, a European or politically open um, way, and I, I know I'm kind of rumbling here, but in, in individuals who are not accepting the changes, who are still um, kind of locked in their past and the way they behave doesn't really live up to the ideals of, uh, of Euromaidan. And so when I walked around uh, Kiev uh, with police officers, um, they, um, they, they, looked at individuals and there was a specific uh, case when they uh, they had to confront um, a middle-aged man uh, who was shouting at them um, and saying you guys you I don't you know I don't believe um, what, what did you do with the country I don't believe in the changed regime um, Ukraine was good as it was, um, things like that, that kind of opposed the Euromaidan change and that ideals. And the uh, police officers were, of course, a representation of the new, of the new regime. They were newly hired new police officers. Um, and they were, um, they spent some time with that, uh, with that man and trying to explain to him um, what, uh, you know, how his behavior is wrong. Um, and that resonates also with uh, how Klitschko presents um, uh, surveillance cameras in um, central Kiev. 
what kind of crowds he wants to monitor and what kind of even emotions. And so he goes as far as to explaining that those cameras can um, focus on human emotions and determine when there is a um, malintention in people and preempt this kind of behavior. And this idea, and this, this, the, these two notions, the smart and safe, they're used interchangeably in the in the Eurasian context. So when um, very often when Sabanin or Krichko or um, mayors in um, Almaty, Bishkek, um, or Dushanbe, when they speak about smart and safe, they use them interchangeably. Usually they refer to smart CD technologies, but what they actually mean is safe CD technologies. And sometimes they just say safe technologies, so Zapasne Gorat. Uh, so, um, but that the, the reference here is mostly on safe city technology, so the more politicized category. But I quickly realized in my research that the domestic picture is not enough. There are also international powers at play. So I'm a comparative political scientist, but I, I did have to look at more of what's happening on an international arena. And very much in, you know, very much in Susan Strange's strange um, argument, there might be very domestic demand for goods and services, but then there's also availability of products, services, and capital um, by external uh, firms, external powers, and they just happen to align um, in the same place. And uh, I identified two major external uh, drivers of domestic innovation. The first one is global prestige. Um, it just became really uh, fashionable to have a smart city. And again, inter that, that really means safe city in the Eurasian context. Um, mayors often, um, when they pr propose um, innovations within the city, they refer to global ranks. Um, and there is, a, there is a dozen of smart city indices out there that compare different cities uh, to each other and identify global leaders. And of course, those um, ratings, they are overwhelmingly Eurocentric. Um, they define uh, an ideal smart city based on um, a model in Scandinavia. But of course, um, the problem, the social social patterns and behavior really is different from um, even you know, global north to and global south. Um, and but still, those ratings they often appear in references uh, by mayors when they introduce innovations. Um, in, in Central Asia references, especially in Kazakhstan, so in North Sultan, the capital of Kazakhstan, the references are more Asia-centric, so South, um, uh, South Korea, so Seoul or um, Hong Kong or Singapore. Uh, but when we look in a, at a more Western part of the former Soviet space, it's really London, New York, those are the ideals for Kiev and Moscow and other cities. So that's one. So there's this notion of global prestige and there's there are certain benchmark associated with uh, what um, a modern urban space looks like. And then there is also more of a really, really this IR uh, notion of China and Russia competition and especially China's uh, rise as a global uh, power in innovation and in technological innovations. And of course, in China, both in China and Russia, there those um, um, innovative projects uh, in technology, they're closely linked to government's foreign policy, foreign and domestic policy, uh, more so, of course, than uh, in the United States or in the European Union, though we also see in the Western context how that's also becoming more interlinked. Um, and uh, Chinese firms, Huawei, Hikvision, and several other smaller, co smaller companies, um, they have um, a, you know, a pattern of inviting mayors or heads of states of min or ministers to their headquarters uh, in Beijing or Shanghai and impressing, and here in the picture is Ms. Yoya visiting Huawei, impressing them, but they're cutting, cutting edge technologies um, and um, kind of selling the idea that they can offer this unprecedented innovation to the urban spaces in their respective countries. 
Um, so there is that. There is the there is the push by uh, corporations connected to governments uh, to uh, to innovate. Um, very often offering um, favorable financial also terms for innovation. Um, and China, of course, is nowhere to be compared to Russia. Russia is um, a lot more, a lot less um, domi dominating in the world, even in Eurasia. But Chinese projects, uh, Russian projects, are slowly taking root in some cities. So in, in Bishkek, um, Vega is uh, from Rostev is um, is the company that supplies uh, several or several dozen of surveillance cameras that identify uh, mostly license plates. Um, and then also um, both countries of course have national strategies on innovation and then expanding their innovative uh, programs around the world. Um, if you read literature on China's um, technological innovations, um, you really get a lot of references to China trying to what is going to harvest as much data as possible from around the world to then Im improve its artificial intelligence capabilities. Um, and uh, Huawei um, um, and other Chinese uh, firms, they cater to this um, political by China. Russia is trying to use, in Eurasia, Russia is trying to use regional uh, platforms, um, in, in this case, uh, Eurasian Economic Union, to try to at least coordinate um, efforts to come up with um, technological innovations and can create a, a shared space for um, technological innovation. I, I see this as, this as an attempt to at least uh, have an oversight on the rapid expansion of Chinese technologies in Eurasia, um, but also as a way maybe to push for more of Russian products um, by Russian um, government agencies. So Rostiech and Rostelikom are of course government agencies in Russia. So back to my question, what do we have? What is the result of those of these domestic and international um, pressures or um, um, sources for, for change. And I see the emergence of roughly three uh, uh, different surveillance regimes in former Soviet space. Um, and they really show more of where does the power over innovation lies um, and control over innovation uh, lies. Um, so one, the first one is local surveillance afforded by wealthier cities like Moscow, Nur Sultan, Almaty, cities that really generating a lot of profit and are um, the economic drivers within a country. Um, you know, in Moscow and Russia, in Almaty, especially in uh, in Kazakhstan. Um, Almaty may, uh, mayor's office, they boast themselves to be contributing um, almost a quarter to the state budget in terms of its economic activity. And they're driven by international prestige. So these are, these are wealthy um, cities with, uh, with really dense economic activity. They're driven by international prestige for innovation. Um, these statements by mayors really refer mostly to this idea that uh, in order to um, be even, you know, even wealthier, even more modern, uh, we're living up to these uh, benchmarks and often cite uh, different cities that are considered to be more innovative than others. And decisions a lot of times take on a municipal level. Um, so within mayor's office and, and at, at times also um, overriding or complementing uh, local law enforcement or municipal law enforcement efforts. Um, it, it, they do represent that they do, the surveillance cameras, they, um, and again, I'm talking mostly about surveillance cameras here, um, they complement and expand law enforcement functions. Um, so now mayor's offices are also engaging in law enforcement in addition to um, interior ministries uh, and, or interior ministry branches on a city level. Um, they, those cities, they do also expand smart elements of a, of a city. So again, uh, comfort of li living within a city. 
um, payment systems, um, Wi-Fi hotspot, and so on. But still, um, smart and safe city um, innovations mostly have to do with law enforcement. Because, because the uh, decisions are taken on a municipal level, they can also really quickly adjust to changing conditions, uh, changing demands. One example is a year ago during lockdown, um, um, when the pandemic just started, started to, uh, to spread, all these cities, all three cities, they repurposed uh, their surveillance cameras from the traditional um, um, kind of criminal and disorderly behavior that they policed, um, be that on the streets with people or with motorists or the traffic regulations. So they repurposed them to police people who violated lockdown uh, measures. This is an example of how um, in one man in Moscow, he exited his uh, apartment building to throw away trash. Um, his face was uh, recorded in surveillance cameras, um, and then next thing he knows, uh, just go away, so police officers show up in his do uh, doorstep and um, penalize him. So um, this uh, surveillance regime for pandemic didn't survive for too long, but it was quickly, the, 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 the speed with which it was scaled up during the pandemic and kind of repurposed was quite impressive in all those three cities. And there are many, many stories like that as well, how this really minute behavior was uh, surveilled and then penalized in all these three cities during the first lockdown. Then there were hybrid control regimes. Um, and Kiev is one of the examples of such um, such regime. And decisions are really made uh, still on a municipal level uh, because um, those are big cities with quite uh, sizable economic economic power. They do focus on uh, law enforcement aspects. Um, there isn't much emphasis on smart aspects of uh, smart cities or safe cities. They usually, because it's mostly law enforcement, I think, and because it's also um, um, the, in, in, in the case of Kiev, it's a more democratic environment. Um, smart and safe city uh, innovations, they are really accompanied, which really strike me a lot, uh, with elaborate narratives about what they represent. And by that, I mean that Klitschko, over and over, over and over again, he refers to the same emotional stories of how cameras help to uh, prevent uh, kidnapping of a small child from daycare um, and really capture perpetrators uh, before they left the perimeter of the city. And this story comes up again, it comes up again and again. Same, similarly, um, he refers to um, a fugitive who's been on the run for 15 years and then finally captured in one of the train stations in Kiev and thankfully to these technologies. Um, this uh, was possible. Uh, very much a result or reinforces result oriented, oriented policing, uh, relying on the statistics of captured uh, fugitive or fugitives or perpetrators, um, crimes solved. Um, th this uh, result oriented element is also present in Kazakhstan, I should say, um, that suddenly they, they present the effectiveness of those cameras through statistics. And of course, there is no discussion of what kind of crime and crime prevention or um, investigation takes place outside of areas where ca cameras um, are not present. Um, and that it's, uh, the, the statistics overshadows just the general narrative of what it means to be um, safe in, um, within, within a city. And then also at this point in Kiev, um, it's really hard to tell whether the data just stays within the city and just innovations um, with the data and the use of data um, is just um, on the city level or even on a national level, or is it now also shared with international companies um, and especially with Hikvision, uh, Huawei and Hikvision, especially in Kiev because uh, Hikvision is one of the very few providers of uh, technologies. So I should have said that in the wealthier cities, they pick and choose from a menu of different vendors. So it's not just the one company dominating the space, but it's a mixture of Chinese, uh, European, local, um, and Western companies that are present. Uh, Kiev now has mostly 
Chinese companies present. And here are the questions, and also kind of expressed by some journalists and society activists expressed concern that maybe data is shared. And the power is narrative of narratives is very important here. And this kind of goes to uh, the project that I'm conducting currently on just generally China-Russian expansion um, in, in, uh, in different contexts. Um, and, you know, it's, it's I, I'm not trying to draw a like a clear line between um, the presentation of uh, smart city technologies uh, by uh, Ukrainian media and Ukrainian authorities, but I think, um, but what, what I'm trying to show here in the ecosystem, the kind of in the uh, discursive ecosystem in which they, uh, they occur. So um, th these are data extracted from uh, GDELT project. Um, it's a data set, uh, it's a global data set on, uh, gosh, uh, it has to do with tone, um, GDELT, anyways, I just was speaking about it this morning. Um, and um, it's kind of, it's an analysis of Chinese, um, and this in this particular case, and of Chinese, Russian, Ukrainian, and other sources. So mostly Western dominated sources. Uh, frankly, I can talk more about it, how we selected the sources and the other uh, um, um, category uh, in Q&A section. Um, but just general discourse of China-Ukraine relations, um, and uh, the gray bell curve shows uh, coverage of Chinese uh, media and the tone of Chinese media. So right from zero, from the, uh, from the center is um, more positive tone of coverage. And the positive would be more like collaboration, agreement. So these words would be automatically co coded as positive. Um, and so Chinese, and this we see picture, we see this um, very, really perfect um, curve, bell curve. Um, across different contexts that Chinese media seem to have a very controlled messaging about their engagement in the world. Ukrainian uh, media is also more on the positive side, although it, it veers towards um, a neutral tone. Um, and then the other sources, again, mostly dominated by, West, by, the, by Western sources, tend to be really negative about China-Ukraine relations. Um, and this happens again and again across different contexts in Eurasia, but also in the world, how international media depicts Chinese engagement in different countries as negative, whereas Chinese depiction and even local depiction tends to be more positive. Um, and this is just, just to say that the engagement and the, so the right side here, um, the right graph plot, it shows um, specifically cooperation events um, in which um, uh, cooperation on smart city technologies uh, would fall. Um, and here again, it's mostly uh, positive uh, coverage of uh, engagements, whereas uh, international media tends to be more neutral. Um, Chinese-Ukrainian relations are not that expansive compared to, let's say, China and Central Asia. And one of the main aspects of Chinese-Ukrainian relations is, in fact, uh, cooperation with Huawei. So, um, somewhere in those um, in, in this in these plots, there would be mentions also of uh, Huawei and Hick Vision uh, installment of um, smart city technologies in in Ukraine as well. Um, and that also here um, it shows just just you know in terms of frequency. Chinese media cover really uh, extensively their engagement in uh, in Ukraine, and followed by uh, by by Ukrainian, followed by other sources, so kind of sources around the world, uh, and then also by Ukrainian sources. But the Chinese, in a way, we we could interpret here that the Chinese sources they try to they try to. Um, uh, dominate the narrative, right? Dominate the, the narrative on what is it that um, Chinese-Ukrainian relations look like. Um, and we see, again, we see those dynamics again and again um, across Eurasia where um, Chinese have both the most um, uh, numerous and most controlled messaging on uh, their relationship with, with the countries in Eurasia. Um, and, and this is on the right side is just the coverage in general on Chinese Ukrainian relations. Um, there has been a peak in 2017 
um, again, I don't want to draw a, you know, a direct uh, relationship between the expansion of um, smart CD technologies and um, the coverage. I, we still need to dig deeper and see uh, specifically what was covered in that period of time. But there is a, they, they, they do coincide. They do coincide um, with the expansion of uh, smart cities uh, in Ukraine and that period of time and just the general coverage by the, by, by the media overall in general. We, the cutoff for us is uh, really before uh, the pandemic uh, began. So we're not analyzing. Um, the uh, news sources that were um, affected by the coverage of pandemic. All right, so uh, now the third uh, type of regime is really outsourced services, outsourced services. And um, smaller cities with smaller economic activity, uh, activity in, in a way, you know, economically not as uh, prosperous cities like Bishkek, Dushanbe, Yerevan, they really have just one or two vendors. Most of the time, one vendor. So Dushanbe and Yerevan, they mostly collaborate with uh, Huawei. Decisions there are made on a national level, not on the municipal level. So the municipal uh, authorities, they're not even involved in um, uh, contracting with uh, activities with the vendors or really maybe, you know, they sometimes may decide and um, ad advise on where the cameras should be installed, but the decisions are really made on a ministerial level. Uh, usually it's telecommunication authorities uh, in, together uh, with prime minister's office. Um, and they're really what's, what's striking about those cities. Uh, and it's really an unfortunate picture, I, I should say, is that these, this is a way of monetizing crime. Um, so the contracts are built so that every time a violator is captured on camera, so be that a motorist was, uh, as a license plate or um, a, a person's face, um, and then those, uh, those individuals, violators, are then um, put in a system where they would have to pay uh, for, for their violations, right? Um, the number of fines collected from the population really increased dramatically, dramatically in those countries, especially in the first few months. But the structure is such that every time authorities collect fines from the population, part of it goes into financing the loan. So what the, the, the incentive uh, structure here is really inverted. It's really much easier for, the, for uh, authorities to have people keep violating and paying off uh, the loans. And this really undermines the incentive for improving uh, infrastructure and just conditions, uh, be that more comprehensive complex conditions in terms of labor relations or, um, um, you know, prote protections and, I don't know, participation of civil society in deciding what kind of city do we want. To really improving conditions on the on the roads and you know building more um, um, coherent traffic patterns and all, all those things that would uh, prevent people from uh, violating um, rules of uh, um, rules on the streets. Um, there is really no sense. I got no sense that there is really control of data. So for uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Viega, the Rostyoks, um firm, I guess, um, agency, uh, Vega, that invested into smart cameras on, on the streets in Kyrgyzstan, in Bishkek. Um, the cloud, Prisma, uh, Pr Prism, is located in Russia. We, you know, there's not, not even a discussion uh, or any statements by authorities on where the data goes, where the data from violators or just any data just that, that is um, harvested on the streets goes. Um, and again, there is really no incentive to reform. So um, summing up here, um, there are three different types of uh, law enforcement regimes emerge as, as, a, as you know, based on the surveillance, um, expansion of surveillance technologies. One is local control uh, driven, driven by prestige and um, Wealthier, wealthier cities like Moscow, Nur Sultan, Almaty. Then there is the hybrid control where there's still um, local, uh, local decision-making, but the, uh, the 
the really deep emphasis is on law enforcement. Um, that is not to say that prestige is also driven, driven by law enforcement, but the prestige um, is one of the features of local control as well. Um, and then there's the third one is outsourced and it's really monetizing crime. It is monetizing crime for authorities that are trying to, you know, if I'm blunt, extract, um, extract equity from citizens. Um, all of these um, regimes, they cater to more autocratic tendencies um, and there is very little discussion on uh, who is watching whom. So if we look at, again, going back to Susan Strange's um, question, where does the power lie here? The question would be who is watching whom? There was no discussion of that whatsoever in the, um, in the Eur Eurasian context. Now, beyond Eurasia, what we find in Eurasian, in the dynamics Eurasia, uh, in, in the developments in Eurasia, uh, we can see that uh, modernity and authoritarianism, so the strive for, to modernize and, uh, and also to expand authoritarianism, they, again, they go hand in hand. And I drew this inspiration from studies of Stalinism. <laughs> so you can kind of see the pattern, uh, sort of the uh, how history rhymes. Um, it's often a substitute to an ineffective state and very often looks for uh, quick fixes to complex problems. And I think this is generally the case for a lot of uh, cities around the world, including in the United States. All right, that concludes my presentation. Thank you very much, uh, Erica. Uh, that was really very interesting. Um, and I'm you know, particularly interested in that there's uh, quantitative data you do. Uh, brought to bear about the media coverage of China's and Ukraine relations. Um, okay, well, so we have plenty of time for questions and discussion. And once again, uh, I'd ask those who have a question to please use the uh, raise hand function. Uh, let me kick things off uh, with a few or question uh, I have for you myself. So um, in the, you know, in, Literally this week, we in the United States, uh, we saw a case trial of a police officer where, who was convicted partly on the basis of uh, video surveillance cameras. Now, of course, you know, his own body cam was uh, part of that and bystanders who took video with phones. But uh, there was also, you know, in, in the evidence presented against Chauvin, there was uh, corroborating, you know, from different angles uh, surveillance cameras, starting with the, the cup uh, food store and so forth. Is there any sense at all, uh, and maybe I'll ask the question in two ways. So, so first, like when you understand these, when you, when you describe these technologies, I mean, you, you take a, a skeptical view and, and that's certainly understandable. It's easy to think of all the ways that this level of surveillance could be put to bad use. But um, in principle, like could you also envision, you know, some positive uses of these um, of these technologies in these particular societies. I mean, again, not in the U.S. necessarily, but in is there any you know hope that you know we could uh, crack down on police bribery in Russia or something like that with the use of these systems, or is that just uh, kind of a fanciful way, Westernized way or liberal way to think about it? Let's put it that way. Um, I would want to say yes, but no. Um, and really this goes into, it's really not, the images are just images. It's really what we make out of them. And the global and the political context really matters. So for us, this was too much. Th thus we reacted. Um, just uh, early this month uh, in a different political context in Bishkek, cameras, surveillance cameras captured an abduction of a woman um, and there was license plates, everything was there and police did nothing only to find out a few days later that she was raped and killed. Uh, so they had all the information, but the political, and it shocked the public as, as well. There was lots of discussion in social media, but then the political, just the government, governance structure really mattered uh, what, how those images served. So on their own, those surveillance cameras, they're, they're really, uh, this surveillance is really means can mean any number of things um, depending on a political context. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, if I had to speculate, if you know, if that would be, um, if just any anything within that video, within um, 
this kind of intersects with some other research that I'm doing on, on violence in India and Mexico. But if anything was not aligned in this video that we would have interpreted it differently, the outcomes would have been different as well. Maybe, you know, George Floyd would have still died, but something did not align in his, in his way within this imagery. And we interpret it within different political contexts or re by referring to different political um, uh, notions and values, maybe the outcome would have been different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Okay, uh, thanks. So I have some more questions, but let me turn the floor over to the audience members who would like to ask. Uh, so Yoy, uh, go ahead, your hand is up. Please introduce yourself and ask your question. Make your comment. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for the talk. Um, my uh, question was, uh, um, what about the potential, I mean, you kind of hinted at this, but I guess what I was really surprised by was the overlapping of data between Ukraine and Russia. And I mean, is Ukraine seeing China as a potential balance to Russia? Like maybe some kind of working with China is a way to balance against Russia, like is China maybe seeing like, so in the West, like there's anti Huawei sentiment, like China might be spying on us, but maybe from a Ukrainian perspective, you might think like, yay, China's like helping us out vis-a-vis -vis Russia. It doesn't matter that Ukraine wants to be with, you know, aligned with the US also against Russia. But I was just wondering about that competition between Russia and China and how that plays in um, uh, sorry, between Russia and Ukraine and how that plays in with China as a potential balancer and the technology part. But the other thing, um, I guess just following on Ted's question, I was thinking about the election um, data that Russia collects and um, the polling data where they would show, you know, images even of polls and they show importantly the number of people per hour this ends up being very useful to opposition people showing fraud. So I was just wondering, like, you're right that it's images, but um, I don't know. Like, I wonder if there are some unintended ways in which the data can end up working against the state if they're not careful of more, you know, more careful about it. So I guess that's just maybe a comment, but I'm really interested in the China, mm -hmm. China as the balancer between Russia and Ukraine, if you have anything to add on that. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I get this question a lot. Like, what is China doing in Ukraine? This is so strange. We're so used to talking to China in a different context. Um, um, again, in the form of states with Central Asia, like Kazakhstan um, or South Asia. Um, and when we, so I, I don't have a, I don't have a clear answer, but of course, uh, Ukraine, Kiev is not collaborating on, on Russia, and that's just out of question. So if uh, Russian companies may have some opening in uh, Eurasian Economic Union space, it's really out of question. And it just goes uh, into this general, um, again, the ecosystem that there are no security relations, there are no law enforcement relations between Ukraine and Russia, or at least between Kiev and, and, and Russia. Um, but I think the Ukrainian case is in terms of security cooperation and cooperation on, on um, even when it comes to law enforcement, it's more the sto a story between the West and the China, and, and China. Um, and there is a lot of support from European Union, from United States, from just NATO in general, and um, building up the security sector and the security sector reform in Ukraine. But um, the Chinese uh, they cater to an area usually dominated not by governments, but by private firms. And companies like IBM or Cisco um, or any other Western providers of, um, of uh, smart city technologies, they're not interested. And the, the markets like Kiev are not big enough. They're not, um, they're, you know, they're not as attractive as even uh, Moscow. And for China, this is, uh, th this is a space really where, um, it's it's possible to enter uh, by taking up risk, but it's making it maybe also a political project, not necessarily an economic project. So I think this is how um, this is how Huawei really found found a way uh, to Ukraine. Um, and 
it's really uh, it's really being picking up Huawei's uh, presence in Ukraine. So you know, next time any of you go to Kiev, just notice how many more of um, Huawei presence you you will see. Um, it can, uh, there are office Huawei offices. There's you know there are stickers. There are cameras um, in, in in Kiev, uh, especially especially in Kiev, but also now in smaller cities. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's out of the uh, if if countries like Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, um, Azerbaijan, um, Armenia, they can choose and pick. Uh, maybe Chinese, maybe Russian companies. For Ukraine, the only vendor uh, that are that is available is a Chinese vendor. So yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but um, regarding on <laughs> the election data and just pictures and picture and being pictures or something more. Um, yeah, maybe it is a reciprocal uh, process that uh, images, they create um, awareness of uh, violations out there. Maybe it can, be, it can be violence or it can be election fraud and they create this awareness. And at some point they can form um, I don't know, activist uh, frameworks or calls for action because you know, enough is enough. We see we have all these uh, all this data. But again, I think the broader political context really matters how we interpret pictures. And even in the studies of how, what kind of victims resonate with us when we see pictures of victims, um, there's so much interesting literature on how some victims resonate with us, whereas others, not really. <laughs> so. Great, great, thanks. Um, you always have a follow-up or is it, cover your question. No, that, that's fine. Okay, great. Um, all right, other questions for Professor Mara? I know it's end of semester completely. Well, I know, yeah. I, I have a, another totally out of the field, more theoretical question. So, yeah. so think of this kind of phenomenon, and actually, you know, it does relate to how you presented it, you know, with this nom this phenomenon of uh, massive surveillance. So, so all public space, you know, anything anybody does in public, one should assume and potentially is being captured by a camera that you can look at somewhere. And that I liked how you couch this in terms of, you know, the, we're, we're expressing this, uh, these norms in the middle class where they want a certain kind of patriotic behavior, you know, in, in public, uh, people shouldn't be spitting, they shouldn't be littering, they should be. And, and when, you, when you talk about it, I mean, I'm surprised, and maybe this is in your article, I haven't read it, but uh, what about Foucault? What about this notion of governmentality and these surveillance, you know, panopticon-like technologies and and do you, you know, is that a theoretical frame that you use or you consider? Because it does seem like a, like a really, you know, self-evident case in point of, you know, that kind of ideal, whereas, you know, the state and the middle class together deciding this is how people should be. And with these technologies, we're going to surveil them and monitor them and we're going to find them for violating. We're going to construct the type of people that we expect our citizens to be. Uh, does that kind of resonate with how you think about this or is it? Adelaide. Yeah, of course, and Foucault always, yes. <laughs> um, absolutely, it does re resonate with uh, governmentality um, uh, framework, but also um, I use, in some other articles um, on policing, I use the notion of, uh, by Habermas that public spaces are created by the dominant class, um, how they interact with public spaces. So um, it absolutely does, and um, a lot of uh, literature on urban spaces is um, inspired by Foucault. Um, I don't necessarily cite Foucault here um, I, because there it is an interdisciplinary study. There is you know a certain amount of um, disciplines involved here, um, and Foucault was just one source too many, I guess. Uh, but um, I think the main main takeaway is it's not just a domestic story. And it's just impossible to study it just from a domestic lens on what's happening locally. Um, and it, it has to be, um, we have to integrate global uh, processes as well into here and um, what's happening mm -hmm. um, broadly. And there's, again, there's an emergent uh, literature on um, AI development and competition between rising powers in AI technological development. And that can be also you know, overwhelming to process as well yeah sure like the supply side push yeah. that's where that all this international 
uh, element comes in. And that's exactly, what... the supply side. Yeah, the supply side is um, a whole other element that, uh, it took, yeah, it took me some time to reconcile those uh, different, um, uh, you know, the, the, the different um, in sources of influence um, taking place within one space, yeah. <laughs> um, Yoy, so Yoy has your Well, if there is another question, yeah, yeah, yeah. but um, something that came to mind, I mean, I, I really like your um, framework of prestige and profit and security, um, but I was just thinking, you know, in the U.S. context, um, instead of the international prestige, I think when you think of the status um, what's high status for law enforcement is this militarization and like military equipment and things like that. So if you look at the militarization of police, local policing in the US, like police departments want to have, you know, tanks and just like crazy kind of equipment. Partly it is a profit of um, using of uh, those companies want to sell, but also there's prestige in this like higher level militarization instead of saying like, Oh, we're the police department that has like hardly any weaponry or guns or anything. It's like you want to be the one with the most um, the most kinds of equipment. So it's it's different, but I think like that's a way in which that framework might travel to other kinds of um, uh, uh, escalation of uh, security apparatus. Um, you know, maybe the U.S. is just like a, di a different different case, but I do think like the international prestige element that you're identifying is, you know, it's just extremely interesting. Yeah, this is, um, this is very, this is an interesting question. So I think the prestige aspect is really this, um, the trap of uh, emerging economies that they are so bothered by the prestige metrics <laughs> um, that uh, cities like Nur Sultan, they want to matter on a global scale. It's a brand. Uh, it's about branding. It's about uh, being noticed. Um, and how do you get noticed by living up to this glo to global standards of being cool, like the coolness standards. Uh, so that really matters for um, for the for kind of cities with emergent economies. Um, the, in terms of U.S., I think the supply side here, um, so there is the demand, right, that there is the demand for militarization, and it's not just because the police are so bad. I think, I frankly think uh, it's also because the society is so militarized, so um, it's militarization, there's a drive for militarization for uh, for the police presence uh, in the United States, but the supply side is, of course, DOD. Uh, there was a huge uh, uptick on the supply side after withdrawal from Iraq on the 1033 program when police pressings were given grenade launchers and tanks and uh, armored vehicles and all that. Um, they had the demand, but then they all, of course had a lot of supply um, for, for that. And uh, yeah, the, the results are of course unfortunate. Um, I think the first images of this level of militarization, this really war level <laughs> of militarization we saw during Ferguson protests when we saw those armored vehicles rolling in the streets to oppose protesters. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of discussions on uh, police militarization took off since then, I find, yeah. So again, there was there is a demand, but there is also the supply component. Absolutely. Yeah, and the U.S. military did play a role in that, didn't they? <laughs> well, I work for the U.S. military um, complex, and <laughs> no, it's fine. It's yeah, it's 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 um, of course it's the largest institution in the world and all that, uh, largest largest employer. Um, and it is a force. I mean, it is uh, it is a state within a state. You know, if I have to, to kind of repeat all the truisms there, so in a way, it is the like the China aspect <laughs> for like China. What China does to Kiev, <laughs> that's what DOD does to oppressing. I don't know to LAPD. <laughs> right, well, uh, okay. Uh, other questions, comments. Well, Ted, actually, I have a, a question. Go, go for it. So, yeah, I, 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 since I was made a co-host, I don't have the raise hand button. So, um, Erica, this is fascinating. I think I told you earlier, I am. my background is in Russian language and literature. So this may be a totally naive question. Uh, I'm not a social scientist, but 
I was hoping you could return back to the question of um, kind of the popular response to this. And I think part of this maybe Ted asked already, and maybe I just didn't get the answer. So I guess the first part of my question is, in the case studies you looked at, you know, Kiev, Almaty, and Bishkek, um, for people who have like cell phone footage or dash cam footage or stuff that's not the official CCTV stuff coming in, how important is that? How influential is that? And then the second half of my question is for everyday citizens in the case studies you looked at, is there any penalty yet for kind of um, opting out or trying to not be picked up? And I guess I'm responding to something I heard in a New York Times article about the situation in Xinjiang, mm -hmm. which I, I recognize as much more extreme where like, not having a cell phone, not having a smartphone or not leaving your house will be picked up by the official surveillance as being suspicious. Right, um, good question. So here's the thing, discussions of, on privacy and transparency are so marginal and this whole, uh, in, the, uh, in just media, in media coverage and the discussion of surveillance. Um, it is, it, again, it's, it's a recent phenomenon. It's just maybe a couple of years old, maybe just three years old, three, four years old. Um, but the discussions are overwhelmingly positive. And, uh, and, and so, and the, the, the negative aspects are usually, oh, you know, this crime happened. If only surveillance cameras were there, we would probably know more uh, details. There's really, um, the only discussions that I saw on privacy in the open space uh, was during pandemic, like you know, when people were saying, hey, wait a second, can't, well, why can't I go and throw away my trash? So this kind of conversations happened in, um, in uh, North Sultan, for instance, or sometimes when it was so outlandish that um, for citizens, local citizens, again, it's a subjective category, of course, that um, a local firm in uh, Nur Sultan uh, tried to introduce payment and public transport was their face. So you enter a public <laughs> a bus and you pay with your face. So that was a little too much. And there was a, some opposition to that. To that. So I, I don't think that system ever taken uh, place. I think the, the bottom line here is, and might be a very controversial statement, but maybe not, maybe not. Um, privacy is a very con uh, Western concept. And it's uh, at least in the Eurasian uh, space, I don't see this personal individualistic privacy as being a thing um, that uh, is contested uh, in order to prevent this more of a public good thing, you know, public, public service or public phenomenon in urban spaces. Um, and, um, and opting out, um, I didn't see, I, I, didn't, I didn't see any, um, um, I, di I didn't see any movements for that or any kind of activism to opt out from being surveilled. And um, the, the most opposition to surveillance is against municipal or uh, national law enforcement. But there is really no discussion about, oh, you know, Russia is surveilling, Russian government is surveilling us or the Chinese government is surveilling us. There's really no discussion on that. It's almost taking as um as a fact like, yes it happens and okay you know so what <laughs> um and uh one uh one journalist uh told me that uh in Bishkek told me that it's um that he found it so strange that they keep uh, asking this question but how about the privacy but didn't you know are, why are we talking about uh data harvesting <laughs> <laughs> for AI technologies <laughs> somewhere in Beijing. I was like, this is this doesn't even matter. This doesn't is not even part of conversation here. It's really about safety on the streets. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah uh, a great question. Quick, follow, uh, but quick observation. Uh, in, you know, in response to your comment about privacy being uh, potentially, you know, a Western value. 
Uh, I don't see a lot of movements in the U.S. or the U. I guess all this started in the U.K., right? Where or at least in my you know very crude knowledge that the, the U.K. was the first society to really go all out with the massive video cameras everywhere. But now it's ever. But I don't you know for all the hue and cry over wearing masks is this big imposition on personal privacy and freedom. I don't see any movements in. I mean, in the U.S., is there like a strong movement against uh, massive public surveillance, or is there protests? Is there are there NGOs? I I don't even read op-eds criticizing this. It just seems like it's widely accepted in all societies. Uh, but maybe- and it's also uh, now widely used. I mean, think about January 6th, how surveilled mm-hmm. this insurrection was. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't seem to be any pushback against that. I think there is now, I see now pushback again uh, among um uh, you know, Black Lives Matter activists, how, mm. and there is, you know, there, there is quite a formidable strain in literature on how um, AI policing uh, just caters to the no, to the pre-existing bias of over-policing uh, communities of color. Um, and mm. that's not discussed enough. Um, and that's something need, that needs to be paid attention to. So, um, but it's, yeah, you're right. It's not really kind of this national conversation even when we talk about Huawei, it's just sort of, you know, something the government is talking about, but not really. What right, talking not about. really. Yeah, it's something that's on people's uh, minds on a daily basis. Right? Exactly, exactly. Well, well, thank you very much. I mean, very interesting. So uh, last last call for any other questions or comments. Um, if not, then uh, I'm, I'm sure I wish, uh, you know, we could all be clapping in, pres- in your presence uh, to thank you for a really fascinating uh, talk and uh, I certainly am going to track down the paper now and uh, read it. It's great to see uh, this work develop. And I love the different angles with which you analyze this from all the, you know, different disciplinary perspectives, the different uh, uh, sort of, you know, it's almost like uh, you have different surveillance cameras around the topic and you're coming at it from all these different, it's really neat. So thank you very yeah, much. I could only do oh, and be done with that. But okay, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.